In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, St. Luke records a different occasion for us of how the conversation went with John the Baptist when hypocrites came to see his baptism. John said, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? John told them what, what fruits to bear. So keeping these words in mind, we begin our meditation this morning so that we might also know what fruits are most pleasing to God in heaven. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. I've often found it interesting that the last recorded miracle of Jesus is the one miracle where he's not really exactly helping anyone. The so-called Gospel of Thomas famously depicts Jesus as a child performing parlor tricks for his friends, forming pigeons out of clay and stuff and causing them to fly away. Well, this made-up gospel was written by Gnostic heretics who denied Christ's saving work. It is easily spotted as a counterfeit by this fact alone that it presents Jesus as a know-it-all who uses his power to glorify himself. But if you notice throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus always performs his miracles to give glory to the Father and to help others. Never, never just to amaze. Jesus says, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me. Jesus made use of his divine power to help the hungry and sick because he, was, he had compassion on them. And even then, it, it isn't just to grant temporal relief but always to point to something greater. As he said when he healed the paralytic, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus did miracles to honor God and to help his neighbor, and in both cases, he taught us how to find our salvation in him. Always. So no, Jesus didn't do miracles just to impress, but what is this miracle? that Jesus performed, this final miracle of his, which alone among all his miracles does not seem to do any good to anyone. It is recorded for us in Matthew 21 and Mark 11. It was right after Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a donkey and after he had cleansed the temple for the last time. It was the next morning when Jesus was returning with his disciples to Jerusalem from nearby Bethany, where they spent their nights. They were coming back for Jesus to spend each day before he was crucified teaching in the temple. And Jesus was hungry. He saw a fig tree as they drew near the city, but it had no fruit on it. But he was hungry. What good is a fig tree that can't bear fruit when you're hungry, huh? So Jesus cursed the fig tree. He said, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. What kind of miracle is this? 
Jesus' disciples were amazed that it withered and died so fast. What they maybe should have been more amazed by was why Jesus got so mad. And, and not just because it doesn't seem to fit the personality we, we imagine Jesus having. After all, the day before, remember, he was turning over temples, or, uh, tables in the temple and driving out with a whip those who bought and sold. No, what was so amazing about his anger wasn't that he who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love got mad, but much more that he would have expected a fig tree to have provided him figs in March. It was out of season. It would be like if you got mad today because you wanted shade and cut down every tree in your yard because they have no leaves. It's December. Wait until spring for crying out loud, right? But Jesus wouldn't wait. He wanted fruit now. It's like what St. Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy in his second epistle. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. In season and out of season. Now, if we are to be convinced, rebuked, and exhorted in season and out of season, then we should also believe it in season and out of season. And the Word of God should be expected to produce fruit in season and out of season. The Holy Spirit works through the Word that pastors are to preach in season and out of season. And the Holy Spirit produces fruit. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in season and out of season. This is the lesson that Jesus was teaching in His last miracle. In season and out of season. And by this miracle, he was most certainly glorifying God and also serving us because he was teaching us what we must know. He was teaching us a lesson that we must remember, especially now in these last days, when the bridegroom seems far away and we have cause to mourn and fast because nothing miraculous seems ever to happen. It is out of season, so to speak. But Jesus was teaching us how to bear fruit to God, even in the cold of winter, and to seek to bear these fruits as greater than any miracle. For that through His Spirit in producing fruit in us, Jesus continues to do what is more marvelous than any bending of nature's law, to produce life in hearts that have been full of sin, hearts of stone, to replace them with hearts of flesh. Is beyond a miracle. And so his ministry right now is far greater than before. As he sends his spirit to produce in us what we cannot produce ourselves. The fruit of the spirit. And what is the fruit of the spirit? Galatians 5. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness self-control. Against such there is no law. Jesus was about to bear the curse of the law. A greater law than the law by which God governs nature. A law that is eternal and that condemns us to hell. Jesus was heading back to Jerusalem to bear the judgment of his Father against all sin. 
He indicated by cursing the fig tree what curse he was about to bear himself. But before he did, as recorded by the next several chapters in both Matthew and Mark, what do we find Jesus doing but teaching? He teaches with all long-suffering. His miracles are over. He teaches. He spent the rest of his life doing what he continues to do now. He teaches. In and out of season, he teaches in order to produce, through his word, before his hour of deepest grief and sorrow, all fruits of the Spirit he desires to find in us when he comes again to judge. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, as John the Baptist warned. Those who do not bear fruit go to hell. What fruit will be found? Today we consider especially one fruit of the Spirit that last week's intro had commanded of us and our epistle lesson this morning commands. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say rejoice. The fruit of the Spirit that we consider today is joy. Jesus wants this fruit to be produced in you. So do you. Of course you do. You want joy. Jesus wants you to be joyful, so through the Apostle Paul, he tells you to be joyful. This is how you get someone to rejoice, right? You tell him to rejoice. You demand it, right? It's almost comical. It's like when your dad says to you, you will sit down and do your homework, and you will like it. Now, it's in your power to do the, the homework, right? And it's in his power, perhaps, to make you. But it is in neither your dad's power nor your power to make you be happy about it, right? So what is this command? Rejoice? Jesus speaks the exact same thing when he says in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And now St. Paul tells us to rejoice not just when we are persecuted, but always at all times. And he says it again. Rejoice. Do it. Great is our reward in heaven, Jesus says. So rejoice. This command to rejoice is not some heavy-handed attempt to squeeze blood out of a turnip. This fruit of the Spirit is just that. It is a fruit that proceeds from what is living. It comes from the Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who creates life in us by giving us faith in Jesus, who is the life of all the living. Like all the fruits of the Spirit, this command to rejoice is an admonition to find your joy in the Lord Jesus. In the same way that any command to be patient is to find in Jesus God's patience toward you. Or to be kind, to find in Jesus God's kindness, and so forth. So with joy. Jesus is the joy of man's desire, and he is our joy if we desire, above all else, to be reconciled to God and freed from our sin. We rejoice by desiring this. The fruits that John told them to bear came to him asking what they must do to bear fruit worthy of repentance, were, to put it succinctly, 
that they stop sinning and that they do good instead. You can read in Luke 3 what he told to the various groups. Just stop it. Do good instead. These are the fruits by which we demonstrate that we are truly sorry for our sins and want to do better. That's not rocket science, is it? No, this seems more doable, in fact. Do my homework, Dad? This I can manage. Enjoy it? Father, be content with the fact that I'll do it. But dear Christian, you can't. You can't do your homework. That's the point. You can't clean your room. You can't mow the lawn. You can't bear the fruit that seems doable. Unless you first bear the fruit that seems ridiculous to command. You cannot bear fruit worthy of repentance unless you believe the gospel. In other words, you cannot do your homework, so to speak. You cannot show how sorry you are for your sins unless you have first learned from your heart to rejoice in the Lord. You cannot bear fruit worthy of repentance unless you believe the gospel because that's what makes them worthy of repentance. Your fruit's worthiness isn't in the value of your reparations or resolutions or how good you have become or how well you can mourn and say, oh, I'm sorry. No, the worthiness of your repentance is in the value of what you have received from him who forgives you. The road you make open to him begins with his mission to you. And all grief must fly away only when he first replaces your sorrow with gladness. So if you'd produce worthy fruit worthy of repentance as John commanded you, if you would learn not to cheat those whom you have cheated, or hate those whom you have hated, or slander those whom you have gossiped about, to be content with what you are paid, and to be kind to those who have no way to defend themselves. If you would learn to cleave to your wife solely in marital faithfulness, and not let your eye wander and desire what God has given you. If you would learn to use your wealth to support your brethren in the faith, rather than to indulge yourself with pleasures that blind you to your need to join your brothers in the faith around hearing the word of God. Dear brothers and sisters, if you would produce the fruit that our Lord's forerunner demands of us to prove how sorry we are for our sins, lest we be cut down and thrown into eternal fire, and we most certainly must produce such fruit. If you would be a better man, a more faithful Christian, the kind of person who goes to heaven when he dies, then learn now to taste of the joy that comes to you and fills you freely by knowing and believing that your sins are not charged against you, none of them, but that they are all forgiven by God himself for the sake of his Son whom he sent to bear them for you on the cross, to end all warfare. God's warfare against you ends first. Or what else could possibly convince you to cease your warfare against him? 
God desires fruit. Be happy in this. All fruit begins when your sins are forgiven. Or what fruits of repentance does God really want from you? Offered with regret and sorrow, with desperate promises to do better like a scared slave begging for clemency. Forgive me and I will pay back everything. No, 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 he wants what he wants to be offered in joy. That his word is true and enjoy that your sins are truly paid for and enjoy that the peace you have with your maker is real. Your maker is the Lord. He has borne your sin as your brother. He has carried your sorrow. So why sorrow? What fruit is left to produce when you know this than to be happy instead? God wants his people to be happy, not in some trite and shallow way, as, the, as they delight in what amounts to grass and flowers, but to be happy in him whose word abides forever. You want to be happy. God wants you to be happy. So find this happiness. You know, people make this distinction between joy and happiness. It's baloney. It's made up. And I can maybe make a good point by making that distinction, I guess. No, to be joyful is to be happy. You want to be happy. And you find happiness, not where you get what you earn, but where you get what you cannot earn. And what no command to earn it can make you able to produce it. Find what God most wants from you. The fruit he is most hungry for. Not by you overcoming all your bad habits and paying for all your wicked deeds, but by believing with a true heart that what Jesus has overcome and what Jesus has paid for is yours freely in the forgiveness that he offers you today. The fruit that Jesus desires is the fruit of faith that includes joy. He teaches you to hunger for this. In fact, I don't know if the cursing of the fig tree is his last miracle. I suppose it depends on how we define a miracle, what we mean by that. But on the night when our Lord Jesus was betrayed, the night before he suffered, with divine strength and endurance to pay for the sins of all humanity. Even before he accomplished all that we needed God to accomplish, he gave to his disciples the fruit of his own suffering and the satisfaction that we needed. Whatsoever was hindered by our sin he has speedily accomplished through his mercy and satisfaction. And he gives you the fruit of his mercy and satisfaction in the Lord's Supper. What is he hungry for? He is hungry for you to receive his fruit and to rejoice in it. So rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. This word for gentleness can better be translated as, well they use reasonableness I think in the NIV, 
or one of them, I can't remember. The King James says moderation. Might better be translated as forbearance, which is the converse of patience. Patience is when you endure something for a long time, long suffering, right? Forbearance is when you, you decline to punish for a long time. So it's the converse of patience. So let your forbearance, your clemency, your reasonableness, your light-hearted attitude towards others be known to all. doesn't mean you talk about it. It means that you act like God. It means that when you have a right to something from someone, be it a debt that he owes you, or respect, maybe an apology, perhaps just a humble attitude, which is in short supply these days, or even just a thank you, you know? And we've all been there. When somebody should show you appreciation or pay you honor or money, justice demands that they give it to you. And what this word refers to is that when, even when, when you have a right to demand it, and you wouldn't be wrong to demand it, and they'd be wrong to refuse it, yet you don't demand it. You show forbearance instead. You let it go. You don't force it. Because the way to bring the valleys up and the mountains down is not to come with a steamroller and a shovel, is not to demand that others bear the fruits that you're hungry for and that they owe you, but to be as our Lord Jesus, who came to lay himself in the valleys in order to tear down every mountain of pride and to do it in his own body and soul on the cross in order first to produce in us that eternal joy that our sins are forgiven so that we might therefore bear in our bodies and in our minds what he is most pleased to receive, every fruit of the Spirit. And so God is toward us as we should be toward one another. He demands that we rejoice. Think of this. He demands that we be happy people. Sees us weep. He sees us sad hearted and mourning over earthly joys that have departed from us. Everything's a psychological illness, you know, but it's a sin to be depressed. Did you know that? It's sinful to be sad. But he comes and he bids us weep no more. And we can't cheer up. And we know from experience that there's no greater joy than the joy that our sins are forgiven. We know it. But a child is sick. A car is on its last leg. My reputation is threatened by people I should trust. A loved one won't talk to me. My work is never done. I'm not what I wish I could be. I'm still addicted to this or that. I'm never content enough. And I feel guilty about it all the time. If I begin to speak for myself, dear brothers and sisters, I'm sure I speak for all of you too. And try as we might, whatever we are anxious about, we can't persuade our sinful minds to be happy with the far greater treasure and pleasure of having God Almighty on our side and at peace with us than having all the passing desires that fill our minds fulfilled. How can we be so short-sighted? How can we defy our gracious God by refusing to be happy?
like a bride downcast on her wedding day because there are clouds in the sky. But why, oh why, what, oh what could keep us from being as happy as Jesus, who gives us his own life that lasts forever, tells us to be. But God knows us. On Christmas we celebrate the eternal God, assuming our flesh and blood, our human nature but without any sin, when holy obedience to the Father, though he was angry and though he wept, was sustained his entire earthly life in the purest, purest joy, because he trusted his Father. God knows us. He will not squeeze joy from you, and he will not damn you for not being able to get over some glum mood. The Lord is at hand. He's nearby. He serves you. He patiently teaches you. So come to where he patiently teaches you. His command is easy. If it is patience, if it is love, if it is kindness or self-control, what else do you want? God wants you to be happy. And it is for your good. We find our joy in him toward us before he ever expects to find it in us toward him. And he commands us to know it. He waits until we do. And until we do, he is at hand. And he is at hand to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hands. Your, your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus unto eternal life.